You're listening to TIP. We always say that we feel like we won the lottery of being born here, especially because we were first generation. So it would have been so easy for us to have been born there, living in extreme poverty. And so technically, we did grow up low income in America, but that's nothing compared to the poverty that a lot of Guatemalan youth grow up in. This week, I talk with the Donis brothers, Jeffrey, Kerwin, and Kenneth, about their upbringing and how it led them to real estate, what wholesaling and creative financing are, how to overcome limiting beliefs, and much more. These guys are young, and they started with nothing, but they haven't let that slow them down. It's clear in this episode that they have put in the work and know what they're talking about. I personally find their story super inspiring, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Let's dive in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I actually have three guests. Jeffrey, Kerwin, and Kenneth Donis. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Robert. It's not often that we have three guests on one episode. I think this might actually be the first time. So let's start by you three introducing yourselves so that everyone who is listening to the audio version that isn't watching the video and can't actually see you guys knows who's talking as we get into the later parts of the episode. Yeah, definitely. My name is Jeffrey Donis. I'm 19 years old. My name is Kenneth Donis. I am 22 years old. And my name's Kerwin. I'm 19 years old. Jeff and I are twins. So, yeah, and we're from Durham, North Carolina. We're real estate investors. We got into real estate through wholesaling, doing creative financing. We did a fix and flip, and then we transitioned into multifamily real estate, which we will definitely go into throughout the show. But we really do appreciate you having us, Robert. We love your podcast, and we love what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. I appreciate the kind words. You guys are all very young. You just mentioned two of you are 19, one of you is 22. So I want to learn a bit about your background with money and how it was handled in your family. Was money a taboo subject in your family or was it something that you guys all openly talked about with your parents and friends, family? What was the relationship with money like as you guys were younger and growing up? So we actually come from a single mother household. So my mom raised us four. We have an older sister. So she raised us four by herself. So money was very scarce growing up. We weren't necessarily dirt poor. We always had a house roof over our head and food on the table, but we didn't necessarily always get what we wanted. But at the same time, my mom just showed us love and always definitely gave us what we needed. So we never were without anything that we necessarily needed to survive, I'd say. We did grow up in a low-income household, but like Kenneth said, we had everything we needed. But money itself, my mom, she always says things like money doesn't grow on trees and things like that. And definitely came from mentality of working for money. And so the entrepreneurial mindset was something that we had never actually been exposed to or the concept that we are now in, which is you have your money work for you. That was kind of a foreign concept. We were raised to conserve everything, almost with the opposite of an abundance mindset. Like my mom always told us to turn the TV off as soon as you're done with it. Turn, never leave a light on when you walk out. And it's just kind of trying to save as much money as possible. 
And we are big on the rich dad, poor dad mindset and book. We actually are starting a cash flow club in our local area. But what we really were lacking was a financial education. And I think that's something that we learned as soon as we got into the entrepreneurship space, which I think is the biggest difference between people that are in poverty versus people that are able to obtain some sort of wealth. So no one in your family, not necessarily your mom, but even extended family, was anyone in real estate? No. So my mom, was. she came here from Guatemala. She was an immigrant and she actually was one of two of her sisters, two of the first people to come to America. Guatemala is a third world country. It's very uh, impoverished. So they really don't have many resources. The, the water there, it's hard for them to find clean water, let alone get into real estate, right? So when we got here, my mom obviously just wanted to get a job and then be able to afford to pay when she had kids. She wanted to be able to afford to sustain us. She did what she could in regards to working, which was cleaning houses. I mean, that's kind of the rat race that she got into. It never was an option for her to get out. She still, to this day, we're still working on trying to get her financially literate, but it's not her fault. It's just in her raising. She didn't even graduate middle school. It's just where the people come from. And a lot of people here in America take that for granted. We take that for granted. We took it for granted until we actually went to Guatemala for the first time in December of 2019. We saw how close we were in regards to the generations. We were literally one generation away from being born in another country. And growing up here, we've obviously always had everything we needed. So as soon as we got back from that trip, and I'll let my brothers touch on this, we immediately started taking action. And that's exactly when we started real estate. But it was because we noticed how many resources and opportunities we had at our fingertips that they didn't. And it really just took us seeing that. We always say that we feel like we won the lottery of being born here, especially because we were first generation. So it would have been so easy for us to have been born there living in extreme poverty. And so technically we did grow up low income in America, but that's nothing compared to the poverty that a lot of Guatemalan youth grow up in. Warren Buffett actually has a quote where he says that he won the ovarian lottery because he was born here in the US. Sounds like you guys either have heard of his philosophy around that or feel the same way just intuitively. Yeah, absolutely. When you guys got back from that trip, you knew you wanted to make a change. You knew you wanted to build some sort of wealth. Why real estate? Like, There's so many different things you could do to build wealth. You could invest in the stock market. I mean, there's so many things. I could list an unlimited number of things. Why specifically real estate? Honestly, we were all in college at the time. So I was sitting in my apartment and I was watching The Breakfast Club. And a guy named Mark Witten came on and started speaking about wholesaling real estate. I personally kind of always knew I maybe wanted to do something eventually with houses. I didn't know what exactly real estate was. I just knew the fact that when you rent a house, you know, you get income. And I knew this growing up because I had people that would buy a house, they would move, friends that would move, and then they would rent that house. And I was like, okay, you know, they're making income off of that house. So it made sense to me. I just didn't know. I thought it would be something I'd have to wait to get into. But then we found wholesale and real estate. And like I said, this guy came on, said he came from the hood. He came from very low income background and he had made a multi-million dollar company and was able to retire his mom, was able to live a lifestyle of his choosing, have financial freedom. And that is when it clicked that we had a route to actually get into real estate that just kind of showed up right in our lap. And then we read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that is exactly the moment that we knew that it was what we had to do, really. Yeah. And in Rich Dad Poor Dad, they talk about, Robert Kiyosaki talks about the importance of investing in income-producing assets and hard assets. 
kind of that's why we knew that we wanted something that we could touch. And Robert Kiesock, he still invests in real estate. And so that's really what when we learned the, the power of real estate and of just investing and having financial education. When you guys decided to get into the world of real estate, other than just Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where did you turn for educational resources? What have been some of your favorite resources that have taught you guys the most? Yeah. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad the summer before I went to college. And then I actually interned for a local fix and flipper. Um, I was cold calling for him. And I think for uh, me, I can only speak for myself. Um, I learned by doing for the most part. So I spent the first semester of college, freshman year, cold calling homeowners, asking them if they wanted to sell. And I was working for this guy. I wasn't being paid. I only made 20 bucks throughout that semester. But like that was my first experience of not working for money. It was rather working for education. And that's kind of like what that mindset shift that I underwent. And so, yeah, I think that was what we turned to. We also turned to YouTube. There's a lot of good YouTubers and a lot of the content, especially to break into the real estate industry is free. You don't need to pay. Yeah. And for me, obviously, just having two brothers to mastermind with, we became obsessed with learning everything we could about wholesaling. So we'd listen to podcasts, I'd read books on mindset, just in general, and then also just YouTube, following people on Instagram, following different YouTube channels, and just binging everything. Over time, while you're cold calling, taking action, you're learning something, you're implementing it immediately. That's like a a snowball effect. And that's really how I got into it in regards to where I went for my education. I think it's pretty cool that you have all three of you guys that are interested in the same thing. I only have one brother and we're not interested in the same thing. And I can only imagine that if I had two brothers, all three of us would probably be interested in different things. So I think it's pretty cool that you guys have this dynamic where all three of you are actually interested in the same thing. I just think that provides so much value. You guys can network together. You can learn together. You can build a business together. You guys just have... Like you said, I love that word. You said you have your own little mastermind between the three of you. And I think that's awesome. I want to touch on working for free. I think that's really important. And I actually didn't know that about your guys' story. When you did that, and now you're looking back on it, how did you feel going in? Did you feel like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do this because I'm not going to get paid? Did you kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel? What was your thoughts going into it? And then how do you feel about it afterwards? Do you feel like working for free is something that you would do again? And do you think a lot of people listening to the show should consider some sort of opportunity where you can learn even if you're not getting paid? Yeah. I'll kind of touch on that quickly. So when we first started a wholesaling business, we worked for six months without getting any fruit of our labor, right? We made no money. And I would say throughout that six month period, we learned everything we needed to do. We actually almost closed on our first deal. We were not getting any income at the time. So throughout that time period, it really just teaches you that as an entrepreneur, you have to understand that one, it's not going to be easy. But two, you were building relationships. We were networking. We were also really just understanding how to build something and how much work it actually takes. We were following up with leads. So the importance of having different types of sales skills, follow-up systems, you're actually doing certain things in that specific business. So I'll let my brother touch on that. But in regards to not working for money, it's really a mindset shift because most people obviously go and they expect to just get paid. And, and I feel like that puts a limit on what you think you need to put into something to get it out or get what you're looking to get out of it. I think that's the first step of breaking the mold and breaking the mindset that a lot of other people have is to just, you don't have to work for money. There's a lot of skills that you can obtain. I think investing in yourself is the number one use of your time is to invest in yourself. And a lot of times you can do activities that are for free that maybe get paid, but have a other type of ROI. So something that we do for free or even we pay for is networking. We believe that investing in relationships and spending time building relationships has an infinite ROI, whereas making $10 an hour is going to have a lot lower ROI. 
And also, I kind of wanted to touch on what you had said, having kind of people to mastermind with, especially when they're your brothers. It definitely makes that part of it a lot easier because we get to push each other. So we like to see growth. I mean, personally, and I know that my brothers are really big on growth, not just business making money. We know that that comes regardless. You know, if you grow into the person, you have to grow into the person that you expect to be making the amount of money that you want to be making. So that's kind of what we focus on because we know that's just the byproduct, but it definitely does make it a lot easier working with people who are not just your brothers, but also your business partners and the mastermind. To touch on the aspect of working for six months, not getting paid, of course, that is very difficult to do. A lot of people might work for a month and not see any payment. And at first we were working maybe two, three, four hours a day, but then for a good almost four months, it became nine to eight or nine to nine. So literally calling all day, every day, working. And we didn't know it was the proof of concept had came, but we didn't know. We knew it was real because people were doing it, but we hadn't actually done it. So like there was always maybe that kind of negative thought saying, oh, maybe it's not real or maybe we can't do it. But like it kind of touches having two other people that are also on that same path just makes it a lot easier just to go for it regardless of what happens. There are a lot of super successful business men and women who have said that cold calling and door knocking, things like that, just real hard nose to the ground type sales is so difficult. And it really takes a lot of character, builds a lot of character, and it teaches you a lot. And I'm sure with you guys cold calling all day, nine to eight, nine to nine, I'm sure you guys had a similar experience. I'm sure you guys had a lot, a lot, a lot of rejection. I'm sure you guys had a lot of people that weren't necessarily super nice to you. Talk to us a little bit about what that was like and what you took from that. Because one of my favorite books that I've ever read is called Rejection Proof. If you guys haven't read it yet, I highly recommend you do, both for the three guests and anybody that's listening. But what did you guys learn about rejection and how you can use rejection to get better going forward from that job? I definitely love that question. I think that's a very good question. So, I mean, honestly, I would say I think my brothers and I have always been very confident, but there's a certain aspect of just even the most confident person before cold calling random people asking if they want to sell, even the most confident person is going to find that very, very uncomfortable. So once we started doing that, it really made me personally, and I think my brothers can agree on this, just become very comfortable with being uncomfortable. At first, it was very uncomfortable, and then it started becoming very easy. It actually boosted my confidence. Like I would say, you know, if I can go speak to a random person or go in person and meet these random people that I've never before ever seen, and offer to buy their house, I can speak to anybody about anything. So it really built that thick layer of skin, I would say. And it's definitely a part of the journey because it's built my character in, in a way that's priceless. Yeah. So I'll kind of go into a story. I started cold calling when I was in college, like Kenneth said, and then eventually we got sent home because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then I started cold calling a lot more because I had more time. I just didn't have as much time and distractions when I was at home versus when I was at school. So what I, Crow and I would do is wake up in the morning and we would look up, okay, when are you legally allowed to start cold calling? Because we had our own dialers. So at nine o'clock, we found that at nine to 8 p.m., 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. every single day on the weekdays. You're not allowed to call, but it makes more sense. You're going to have more success rate, right? So I would wake up at around eight. And then that was back before we started waking up earlier, but we would just wake up around eight, eat, and then start cold calling from nine to, to eight. And I literally hated it every single day. I wake up and I just would get so nervous. I'd want to just stay back in bed. And it was the thing I hated doing. I did not look forward to getting up. 
like Kenneth said, slowly you just start getting used to it. I mean, eventually I actually was able to be reading while I was cold calling and I'd be on like a course call, just watching a video or a YouTube video, listening to a podcast and multitasking. And I could do it like it was really, really easy at that point. And that's when he was saying just about being able to take rejection because that's what we were facing 99% of the time. You're either getting cursed at, someone's telling you like, who are you? They're trying to ask you all these questions. They're not serious. You just learn to really face that rejection head on. And if anything, it just becomes normal, right? So being uncomfortable becomes comfortable. And then you apply that to all aspects of life and business. It's the same concept. Yeah. And to follow up with that, I think just being in that state of uncomfort and discomfort for long periods of time, you kind of numb yourself. And I think it also taught us a lot of themes and lessons of entrepreneurship, like uh, being persistent, because we would hear no almost all the time. And so we really had to stay focused on our vision. And we really tested our own faith in ourselves and in our mission and what we were doing. Obviously, we had ups and downs and we were motivated some days and we weren't other days, but just the challenge of showing up every day. I think that also not only like just the rejection, but the consequences of that rejection and building the mindset of kind of having to like trick yourself to thinking, yeah, this is going to work because you don't have the fact yet. It's, it's faith before fact because we haven't done a deal yet. And so I think that that alone, I mean, once we proved ourselves right, it kind of just built a lot of confidence within us and showed us that it really does start with like just a dream and believing it's possible. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. 
All right, back to the show. Jeffrey, you mentioned something interesting that not a lot of people have talked about yet on the show. So I want to touch on it for a second is you mentioned that there's hours in which you're allowed to call people. Talk to us a little bit about that. I don't know how many people in the audience are actually doing cold calling, but I know a lot of guests have talked about that and reaching out to owners of properties. So talk to us a little bit about the hours and how you're allowed to call people and when you are and aren't. Yeah. So the reason that we did this was because we were like, okay, well, we've learned that the more time that we put on cold calling, the more leads we'll get, which means that we're going to increase our chances of getting deals. So we took the approach of how long can we possibly call every single day with mitigating the risk of us perhaps getting in trouble legally. So we looked up on Monday through Friday, how long can we call? Like, when can we start? When are people going to answer? When would it be considered too early? So I found at 9 a.m. on Monday through Friday to 8 p.m. And after that, people are usually going to bed on the East Coast. We were only actually targeting people in the EST time. So that's really why we had 9 to 8 p.m. And then on Saturday, it was 10 to 7. And then Sunday, it was, you could start at 10, but sometimes we started at 11 and we'd go to about 6. And that would be for us too. That would be like our work schedule in regards to cold calling. Because like I said, this was nonstop. We would not stop for anything. We would go to the bathroom. I would eat. I would literally not get off the dialer just because I have headphones in. So I have wireless headphones. So I could just walk around my house. If I get a call, I'm holding my laptop. I have the information. The dialers works that way where the information gets pulled up on your laptop. And at first you have a script, right? You get nervous and you have to read it off, read off the script. But just doing it that amount of time, it becomes like, it's just subconscious at that point. You're just talking. And I memorize not only the script, but I memorize my line, what has the most success rate because I was testing it consistently. So we got pretty good at cold calling. And eventually it was time for us to delegate that. But a lot of people aren't willing to take that step. And we all learned that we're willing to do anything because cold calling is probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do for that long. It was just all day. And it's not like I have anything else. Nine to eight, my day's over when I start and when I finish, you know? So that actually forced us to wake up earlier. Um, it kind of just forced us to make the most of our time, which meant go to bed early. As soon as you're done calling, just eat and then go to bed so you can wake up early, go to the gym and do something about self-development, right? Because we want to make time for that. But it really just helped us structure our day. And to touch on your point, it was just to get the most out of the day. What would you guys say your general success rate is? It doesn't have to be a specific like one, two, three percent, but just in general, if you called 100 people, how many people do you think you actually had success with or 1,000 people? What was your general success rate looking like? Out of 100 people, we might get one or two leads, but a lead, you need a lot of those to even get a deal or for the numbers to even come close. So we'd go weeks. Yeah. And in our business, the money was really in the follow-up. So you would get one or two leads for every 100 calls you made, but then you'd have to follow up with them and you wouldn't close the deal realistically within maybe two to six months, maybe. That's what wholesaling is, is building up a pipeline, a sales pipeline. And then you just follow up with them, nurture the leads, build the trust. Because most people, if you get a deal that wants to sell within the next 30 days, that's considered a unicorn lead. I mean, those are rare. So that's pretty much it. You really have to have good sales skills. So were you guys doing this cold calling for the flipper? And then basically, did you realize like, hey, we don't need to do it for this flipper anymore. We can do this for ourselves. And then when we get a lead, we don't have to actually do the flipping. We can just wholesale that lead or contract to somebody else and still make some money without actually having to do the flip. Is that kind of how that progression took place? So actually, I was calling for the flipper my freshman year because I knew I wanted to get into real estate, but I didn't know what to do. And so I thought that'd be a good way to learn. But when we went to Guatemala, we actually had a conversation and we decided we were wasting time. We realized we were in analysis paralysis where we were too focused on learning and we could just start our own venture and do it ourselves. And so on January 2nd, 2020, I believe Kenneth pulled the first list and we started calling, I think the next day. So pretty much like six months of me just cold calling for the flipper. Kenneth and Jeffrey actually never did that, but we all started cold calling once that new year started. 
And so once you started cold calling for yourself, if you found a lead and you were actually going to close a deal, what did you do from there? So once the lead came in, I was pretty much the acquisitions guy for a while. And I would follow up with the people, just kind of see what their motivation was, why they were looking to sell, how we could help them, see if we can either push them in another direction, maybe listed with a realtor or things of that nature. And to see if we would a good fit for each other, I would go out to the properties, see how much and repairs it would need, and then see if the numbers make sense. I'd give them an offer and uh, if they were to accept, we would, of course, be able to close on it. So that's kind of how it went with us. Yeah. And uh, just keep in mind, I was in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeffrey was in Wilmington, North Carolina, and Kenneth was in Greensboro because we were each at our own respective colleges. So we were doing this all virtually, not really seeing each other in person. But that's why we knew that Kenneth was going to be our boots on the ground, which means he was going to be the one traveling to meet with sellers, poor properties, due diligence on properties. So we were cold calling. Jeff and I were the cold calling. We were generating the leads for Kenneth to pretty much be the one to follow up with those leads and go out and see those properties. So we were calling in his market. And that's kind of how our structure worked. Kenneth, when you said that you would close on the properties, what do you mean by that? So we had a list of buyers, partners, you could say that we worked with, basically. So we would just assign them the contract. And these guys that we worked with were our partners. They would on the back end, flip the property and then make their profit on the back end. So we were kind of the middleman, basically putting the property under contract and then assigning that contract to a buyer who then still has some wiggle room to go in and flip the property and make their profit. So we were kind of just making a spread in between. So we wouldn't actually take ownership to the property. We would just get an assignment free and they would close on it. They would wire the funds. They would pay for the whole transaction. We would just get a fee for putting the two together. How did you guys build that buyer's list? Yeah, that was me and my... I had another friend who was just helping me, but we pretty much went to Facebook and looked up different Facebook groups. You can just type in wholesale real estate. And in North Carolina, there will be different fix and flipper groups, wholesaling groups. And what people will do is they'll make posts about different properties in different areas and cash buyers will comment their email addresses because they want to receive the information. So what I really did was I just went, created an Excel spreadsheet, and then found every single email address I could, put them all in the spreadsheet by different areas. And then I email blasted all of them, asking them what their criteria was. And then most of them didn't respond, but eventually just got some responses. And then I assumed that I would just, once we found a deal, I could just send it to everyone that had the, you know, was in the area. And that's pretty much how we built that. It was not hard at all, actually. People overthink it. What was the average fee that you guys were able to get on a property? I know it varies depending on how much of a discount you got on the property, how good of a deal you're able to find, how expensive the property is, of course, right? If a $50,000 property is going to have a different fee than a $250,000 property, most likely. So just generally speaking, what were you guys seeing for a fee when you're able to assign that contract? So out of the 16 deals that we did, I think average was in between twelve to 15000 so that was kind of average. I mean, there were some that were a lot smaller and some of that, that were a lot bigger. But if you put them all together and then average them, I'd say it's roughly in that ballpark. Were there any cases where you guys couldn't find a buyer? You had a property, everything seemed like a good deal. The numbers looked good to you, made sense. Then you went to your buyer's list and there was just nobody willing to buy that deal for whatever reason. Did that happen? And if so, how did you guys handle it? I'll let Kenny touch on it, but I'll touch on it very quickly. The first time that we actually got a property under contract. We didn't really know exactly how to run the numbers. And we got it under contract at too high of a price. And the market will tell you that once you go to your cash buyers and ask them, like, can you reassign this for this amount? You'll just ask, you'll give them your asking price and they'll say, 
I need it at this price. So you simply go back to the seller, try to renegotiate, explain why. A lot of people might lie, but we really were just telling the truth. It needs too much work. Like I want to sell it for this price. You kind of give them the formula that you're using. And sometimes they'll work with you. Sometimes they won't. Usually they don't, but sometimes you're able to renegotiate and get it under contract at a better price. How did you guys learn to run the numbers? You just said that first one, you didn't really know how to run the numbers. So first, tell me, how were you running the numbers on that first deal? What did you do wrong? And then second, tell me how you actually learned to do it right. So, I mean, we were studying, of course, looking for comps on, like on Zillow and like using the MLS and stuff. And we would watch videos on it. So we got a good idea. We were just a little aggressive or not as good with the repair numbers. That's where we kind of went wrong. We've never done real estate before. So we were thinking it needed a lot less work. But whenever somebody sees it and they know what they're talking about, they can easily tell this house is going to need either a full gut job or we definitely need to do the flooring, things like that. So it's fairly simple to run the numbers. We just kind of tried to pick similar properties, similar square footage, similar bed, bath numbers within that same area, within a mile that have sold recently have been flipped. And then 70% of that minus the repairs needed, that's our buyers would buy it at. So that's kind of where we were at. But after seeing properties multiple times, kind of studying on YouTube and stuff, we kind of started to get what things cost in order to repair and replace them. And that's kind of how we started kind of learning accurately how to run numbers. Just like anything, right? Like when we got into multifamily syndication, it all just comes by doing. I've learned that I can watch as many videos as I'd like. I can read as many books, talk to as many people. And that's all great. And it's taking action in one way. But the best way that Kenny can also talk on this, because he's underwriting deals for our team when it comes to multifamily. But the best way I've learned is by actually looking at deals, underwriting them yourself, asking questions to someone that knows the concept better than you. But you have to know what questions to ask. And the way that you figure that out is by taking action. So what happened on that deal when you couldn't find a buyer? You went back and you tried to negotiate. They weren't willing to do it. What happened? Yeah. So I would say that was our first loss. Two months into the journey, we had put $500 EMD non-refundable and we couldn't find a buyer. So we lost half a grand that we didn't... Well, we had it, but we're all three very broke college kids that didn't know what the heck they were doing at the time. We had an idea, of course, but I would say we just lost money, unfortunately. Typically, you can put refundable earnest money, but the seller insisted that if she were to sign the contract that she wanted it to be non-refundable. And we were eager. We thought we were correct on the numbers and we were wrong. Can you guys only sell your deals to flippers or could you sell your deals to rental property owners, maybe people who are interested in doing the burr strategy? Or do your deals that you're looking for only make sense for flippers? No, we can sell them to flippers. We can sell them to rental owners. Sometimes if it's a good deal, doesn't need that much work and then it cash flows, you run the numbers that way and you present it to a buyer who might be looking for a rental. We've even actually sold our deals on the MLS to a conventional buyer, someone who's actually looking to live in the property. So you can sell it. You know, There's ways to kind of sell it anyway or to whoever, as long as the numbers make sense for your buyer. Which is why it's really important to have a strong buyer's list because the more buyers that see it, the more likelihood that someone will like it regardless of the price. I want to walk through your best and your worst wholesale deals so far. Let's start with the worst one. What would you guys classify as your worst deal and walk us through the process and and what happened on that one? I wouldn't say that was ever our worst one. I mean, all of them kind of came with their own kind of 
hoops that we had to jump through. But I would say the worst one was maybe the one that we made the least amount of money on. And the best one was the one that we made the most amount of money on. And those actually happened on the same day. So we closed two deals. Our first deals, they both closed on the same day. So we actually closed two deals for our first time ever on the same day. So one of them we had assigned for, we got the property under contract at 60 and we signed it for 93. So we made about a $33,000 spread. And then one of them, it was, we made like $500 spread. So I would say maybe those two would probably be the worst or the best and the worst. When you were going into that deal where you made 33,000, was that your expected profit or was there a catalyst that maybe made the underwriting better than you expected? Did your buyers maybe get into a bidding war? Walk us through a little bit on how that came to be. That one was a follow-up deal. Kenneth and me had just come back from a property tour on another property in the same city. And we got a call back from the seller. We had tried to get it under contract the week before, but she wasn't okay with the price. So she just said she was going to keep it as a rental. And we said, okay, we'll follow up with you. She actually called us back and said she was ready to sell at that price. We were not expecting to make anywhere near the 33. I don't remember exactly how much we were expecting to make, but I think it was maybe like 5,000. Um, we just put it out to our buyers list. And as you mentioned, we did create a bidding war in a way. We had so many people that wanted to go see it. So we just booked a tour the next day and the day after. And we committed to waiting two days. And we we're going to wait till 5 p.m. on the second day to get all offers. And then that was when we received all the offers. And uh, we actually, in the 93, we had like Kenneth said, 93,000 and something was the highest offer that we had before 5 p.m. But it was like 5.30 when we received one with, I don't know, he'll kind of touch on the exact number, but it was a couple grand higher. Those things was like 100, yeah, about 101,000. So we missed out on a few grand, but we kept our word with our buyers. And I think we gained a lot of respect with them because I'm still business partners with a lot of them. But we told them the guy who submitted it late that he missed out. And yeah, but we really created that bidding war. We had no idea we were going to make that but it just comes to show the power of following up and building a pipeline. I love that you guys stuck to your deadline. I think that, sure, you could have made, what, $8,000 more from 93 to 101? Sure. But what is sticking to your word worth? I guess I would bet it's probably worth more than $8,000 to your list of buyers. So I love that you guys did that. One of the questions that I think a lot of people probably have is, why would these homeowners sell to you guys at such a discount? Right? Let's just take that lady. You said you scheduled two tours. Sounds like you probably had a lot of people. So you're bringing two tours of a lot of people through her house. I mean, if I was the homeowner, I'd be like, okay, well, clearly there's some interest in this property. I could probably sell it more than I'm selling it to these guys for. So where is that disconnect and how is this even possible? One reason is that they might just not want to deal with a realtor. A lot of times they don't want to go through the process of having people go into their house. That was something that we saw spike during COVID. A lot of homeowners just didn't want to have property tours. Also, a lot of times the property isn't in great condition. If it needs a lot of work, they don't want to come out of pocket to fix it. And a lot of retail buyers or realtors won't list a property without it being renovated and updated. Others, they just realistically, some people just need a fast close. They're going through foreclosure. They're about to move. They're just completely done and don't care about the property. In this property, for example, it was just vacant. It was actually a daycare and she just she didn't really care for the property. It was vacant and she just didn't want it. And she just wanted some money, cash. She wanted to close quickly. She didn't want to go through the headache of waiting a long time and listing the property and all that. So we just made it convenient for a lot of the sellers that we worked with. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Throughout the conversation so far, you guys have made a couple comments that you've delegated or that have made it seem like you're not maybe doing as much wholesaling today. So what is your future with wholesaling? Is it a strategy you plan on continuing? Is it something you guys are just had enough with? What does the future hold in terms of wholesaling? We actually left wholesaling in the single family real estate space. We decided that commercial real estate was more aligned with our long-term goals. With wholesaling, we felt like I didn't realize it at first, but we just created a job for ourselves. We were tied to the business. I and mean, after talking to some mentors and um, doing some, some self-analysis, we really just felt like multifamily real estate and investing in passive income-producing assets is you know, what, why we got into the game. And commercial real estate was going to help us reach our long-term goals the fastest. So that's one of the reasons why we left wholesaling. So we actually, the goal was pretty much always to go after passive income and 
we've always had the dreams of getting into commercial and we kind of just asked ourselves, well, why don't we do it now? We started listening to multifamily podcasts after we got introduced to multifamily syndication. And we heard people just starting in multifamily, skipping single family all together. And so we just kind of asked ourselves, well, why are we waiting? And we realized that it was really fear. And then just kind of decided to just cut our wholesaling operations completely and started multifamily. What types of properties are you guys looking to acquire as part of your syndications and where are you guys looking? I'm still the acquisitions guy for our team. We're a part of a group who currently holds 8,000 units, closer to roughly $400 million assets under management. But we target primarily 100 to 200 unit apartment complexes. You know, multifamily is, is kind of our niche, especially apartment complexes. And we look in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Our group is based out of Texas, but we're looking to help the group kind of expand here in the Carolinas as well as Georgia markets. As such young investors trying to take down large multifamily deals and raise money from investors, I can only imagine that you guys face a ton of pushback and headwinds purely just because of your age. And I know it because I'm only 26 myself. I faced it when I was five years ago when I got into real estate. I was 21. So I faced it myself. I know exactly what you guys are going through. What challenges has being young caused? And how are you guys all overcoming those challenges? I definitely love that question because it is something that I think a lot of people, I think, let get in the way of them either starting real estate or doing multifamily or even chasing their dreams because they think that they're too young. But I think one thing that we've very much benefited from is the fact that we know to an extent, we know what we're doing. You know, we haven't done it long. We have great mentors. So when we have conversations with older people, I think that they respect us a lot because we actually know what we're talking about. So just having the confidence going into a conversation, knowing that we can actually go out and buy this asset that we're speaking to the broker with or talking to passive investors about, just knowing what we're talking about and being confident in that. And in obstacle, we've, I think, not necessarily be aware of all the time, but imposter syndrome is something that I think we had at first where we just thought that we didn't belong because we were too young, didn't have the experience. But I think um, a remedy for that was just to get educated. And we invested about a month of time to learn everything we could about multifamily. And then we found a right mentorship and we got into the right networks. And we've been focusing on building relationships with just mentors. And so we are able to leverage people who aren't necessarily as young as we are and have more experience than we are. So we have a great team and we have different value that we can bring. And I think that, yeah, that's kind of how we sort of approach it. We've noticed, we go to a lot of networking events and we've noticed that a lot of people wish they would have started at our age. So I feel like if you're, or I, I think my experience, I've seen that by actually putting in the time and effort, like Kenneth said, we're not just here saying we're going to do it. And then we don't know what we're talking about. No, we spend hours, like all day, every day, learning the content, actually doing it, looking at deals, talking to investors, making content, all of this behind just being able to talk to people and actually have the confidence to walk up to people and shake their hand, they're going to look at you and say, wow, you're young, but I wish I was in your place rather than saying this guy's young and he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, So I think it's preparation and also just like I said, you have the confidence because you know what type of work it took for you to even get into the room. Because a lot of people, like you said, I don't know many people that try to make friends with people that are at the event, but most people don't are my age and that's okay. I like hanging out with all types of people. Of course, I don't expect them to be my age, but it's just that's the thing that it takes is really just everyone's here in the for a reason. And it's really because of the time that we actually put in to get there. I haven't personally been to a ton of in-person networking events. I 
am thankful and blessed enough to be able to get all of my networking through the podcast that I need. But before I had the podcast, I did go to a couple in-person network events. And this was back when I was a little bit younger than I am now. And what I found was, at least for me, was that a lot of times, at first, people were a little abrasive or that they didn't necessarily want to talk to me because I was young. Not everybody, but for the most part, that was a lot of people. But then what would happen is we'd talk a little bit. They'd give me a little, like a couple minutes just to see. And then we'd talk and they could tell that I was actually knew what I was talking about. And then totally walls just went down. They didn't care about my age anymore. And they were actually super excited to help me and teach me. They wanted to take me under their wing. And like you said, they wish they had started when they were my age. And so they were happy to help. And so I think what you find a lot of times is that these older, more successful investors, they're more than happy to help, but they don't want to waste their time. They know that their time is so valuable that they don't want to invest their time in helping somebody that's not going to put in the work. And so by being able to prove upfront that you know at least a little bit and can have a little bit of an intelligent conversation, because that's free, right? You can learn that knowledge without having any deals. They're going to be a lot more willing to invest their time into you. We actually just came back from an event in Belize. And so we were hanging out with Robert Helms, Russell Gray, Ken McElroy, Robert Kiyosaki, Michael Blanc, Brad Sumrock, like some really, really wealthy, big people in the real estate space alone and not just real estate. You know, They all have their other businesses. But like you said, some people, they don't necessarily always come up to you and talk to you, but it's about you going up to them and having the confidence to just strike that conversation. And I feel like they may be a little impressed that someone as young, maybe as us or anyone really go up to speak to them because they're really big. But you know, we treat everyone not necessarily the same, but we're not necessarily scared to kind of go up and just start a conversation. There was times where after dinner, we would kind of all disperse and there'd be people in a group already having a conversation and myself or my brothers would just walk up and just sit down and just start speaking to everyone at the table. And I think that that's something that was built kind of through our entrepreneurship journey. When you said you're walking up to these people and you're putting in the time beforehand so that you can actually carry on a conversation and ask good questions. I also think what I do purposefully is look how I can add value, whether that's spiritually, maybe they need a connection. We're really good at networking. It's one of my strengths. So if I now know someone is looking for some type of person, oh, well, I met this guy over here, I'm going to introduce you to. And I actually did that at the Belize event. I introduced two individuals and the other individual later, we were able to start another conversation and now I'm getting him on my podcast. But I didn't go in expecting anything. I was actually just looking to build a relationship and see if I can bring value. So I just think by having a different approach to certain things, they're not going to care if you're young, if you're looking to bring value. Kenneth, I would be willing to bet that you guys wouldn't be able to walk up to that group of people if you hadn't done the cold calling. I'd be willing to bet that that cold calling is what helped build your guys' confidence to be able to do that. And you might not think of it. You might not make that connection in the moment. But I bet now looking back, you guys are like, yeah, that is what allows us to do that. Yeah. And I would uh, 100% definitely say the cold calling, like I said, it, it built character. I think wholesaling and single family real estate really built us as individuals in order to be able to be where we're at today. I speak to brokers that I've never spoken to about 30, 40, 20, 30, $40 million deals. And I'm 22 years old and I have to be confident and, and know what I'm talking about when I'm speaking to these brokers, because they have people that can buy those assets cash. You know, They don't have time to just mess around but I'm starting to build relationships with them and just get to know them. So it's definitely a good skill to have, I'd say. You guys have mentioned mentors a couple of times. What role has mentors played in your journey so far? And how are you building and finding those mentors? Were there some people maybe from your buyer's list? A lot of times if people are on buyer's list, they probably have cash. Maybe they could be potentially good mentors or 
maybe that flipper you worked for, Kerwin, ended up being a mentor. I don't know what he was like. He wasn't paying you guys. So it sounds like he might not have been the best mentor, but it's possible. So where are you guys finding these mentors and what role have they played for you? I would say networking is the number one way that we've found the best mentors, but also I'm just putting ourselves out there and actively looking. I would say that one thing is we've gone, not necessarily like outgrown mentors, but as we've changed our approach to real estate in our industry. So we started out with one mentor. We wanted to do something different. We had to move on. We kind of see these people as like, we want long-term relationships, but they're a stepping stone on our journey. Yeah. We're really active on social media and I can kind of touch on being young and how that adds to our credibility, but it's open doors in regards to us finding who's doing what in certain spaces, who's a leader and who we can benefit from the most if we build a relationship with them. And sometimes you actually have to give some type of value, whether that's money or time towards that mentor, just to have access to them because they're busy people and their time is valuable. So you have to give them something of value in order to get their time. A lot of people, almost everyone that's in this space that we're in on the podcast, whether it be real estate, I have another podcast about stock investing, entrepreneurship, anybody that's in this space pretty much wants a mentor. I think it's very common. Almost everybody does. But I think what's missing is that not a lot of people understand or know what exactly that relationship is going to look like. What does having a mentor entail? What is the mentor supposed to do for you, especially if they've never had one? Let's add some color. What do your mentoring relationships look like? What do your mentors do for you? How does that kind of work? I actually get that question a lot. And my advice to people when they want to know where to find a mentor, I tell them to first write down what they want from a mentor because different mentors are going to offer different things and each person is going to have different needs that they want met. Some people are going to want a mentor who holds their hand, gives them a, a blueprint, guide, a roadmap to where they want to get to. And a lot of times that's like a course with a teacher. But there's a lot of other times when just like you, you find a friend and who's older and has done what you want to do. And you agree to meet up with coffee every other month and just chat and pick their brain or hop on a call. And Kenneth can probably touch a little more on our current mentor. He's Mark Kenny. I mean, he's also our partner, but we have direct access to him. We get on calls with him. He's very accessible, always responsive. And um, he'll also partner with us on deals and just kind of help us learn the ropes. In regards to my ideal mentor, and I don't know if I can speak for my brothers, but when it comes to my ideal mentor, I take action regardless of who I'm with. Now, what I want is when I have a question throughout my journey, because I'm going to come up with things that I've never encountered. I want someone that's already where I'm going. And I want them to be able to like give me the answer to my question as soon as possible. And that's what we get out of our mentor. I'm not looking for someone to hold my hand. I just think if anything, that would just limit myself because then I'd get dependent on that. What I want is someone that's a resource and I can use when I'd like. And I think for a lot of people, if they treated it that way, they'd get a lot farther than just having someone hold their hand because once that mentor's gone, for whatever reason, how are you going to be able to accomplish anything? One of the things I ask almost every guest that comes on the show is to give everyone listening to this specific episode an actionable step that they should take after listening to the show. Before the listeners turn on the next episode of their favorite podcast or get sidetracked with something else that they have to do, what is one action they should take after listening to this episode? I can go first. I would write down the five people I hang out with the most. And then whatever your goal is, whether that's to increase your income, let's use that for this example. You can maybe see how to give them a ballpark range as to how much money they're making. That'll give you a resemblance as to where you're going. If you're not hanging out with people that are either better than you in whatever way, or that are bringing you up or giving you some type of positive impact on your life, then I highly recommend you looking to find new friends or a peer group just because when I left high school, 
when I got out of college, I cut off everyone. It just happened naturally. I didn't do it intentionally. Sometimes it would be right. They'd reach out and I just wouldn't really be able to hang out with them because I would be doing other things. But luckily, like I mentioned earlier, I have a mastermind with my two brothers and I don't let many people in my circle now. It's really only certain people that are doing certain things that I like. And I think it's very, very important for you to surround yourself with people, whether that's literally listening to podcasts throughout this time period, we have technology. So if you can hang out with people in person, you can hang out with them on podcasts, listen to what they have to say. You can get on YouTube videos and all that stuff, audiobooks. That can be your peer group. That's what I treat it as. I hang out with a lot of people through technology versus in person. So I highly recommend just being careful with who you surround yourself with. I would recommend they read two books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki and Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Those are two books that changed our lives. We say it broke us from the matrix and we just couldn't see the normal like nine to five path and that didn't fit us anymore. We weren't congruent to that path anymore. Whether they're looking to get into wholesaling or if they're looking to get into multifamily or if they're just listening to this and they're not looking to get into real estate, maybe into some other thing, definitely learn. I think, of course, education is important, but also apply what you learn regardless. I just think massive action. Just take massive action. Just go out and do it. Whether you know what you're doing or not, you're going to learn what not to do the next time if you do it wrong the first time and things of that nature. So definitely just take massive action. And I think that's one of the best tips that we abided by. And and it's definitely paid in a good way, I'd say. As we wrap up this episode, I want to give you guys a chance to tell the audience where they can go to connect with you guys. Where's the best place to find you? Yeah, we're on pretty much every social media platform. We're big on Bigger Pockets, which is a real estate networking site. We're also on Instagram. All of our handle is Donis Brothers. That's D-O-N-I-S Brothers on pretty much every platform. Our website is Donis Investment Group. So D-O-N-I-S Investment Group.com. And if you guys want to learn about passive investing in real estate, we have a great top five mistakes passive investors make free ebook that they can download. And yeah, we just like to leave with value. So they can check us out. We also have a podcast called the Real Estate Monopoly Podcast, where we bring on people in the multifamily space, also just real estate in general. So you know, just check that out if you're interested in real estate. I'll be sure to put a link to all those different resources in the show notes below for anyone that's interested in checking you guys out further. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Robert. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.